Well, we are just two weeks left in our sermon series that we have been traveling through this summer, uh, exploring and sort of digging and unearthing what it is that the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching that we discover in the Gospel of Matthew, has to teach us. Uh, And one of the things that I I want us to just be reminded of perhaps this morning is that behind the sermon, one of the assumptions that we bring as people who follow Jesus to the text every time that we read it is that we do believe that there is a God, that we do believe that there is a God who is for us and not against us, and that we do believe that there is a God who is for the world and not against the world, that God is reconciling and redeeming not just us here in the church, but God is utilizing all the divine resources that he has at his disposal to bring about the redemption and reconciliation within the world. And as we read the as we read the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things I want you to be reminded of is that one this is a vision for the life of the church, but it's also the means by which we become people of transformation. Not that just we become transformed and following in the way of Jesus, but we become agents of transformation in our community and in the world as we follow in the way of Jesus. Whenever, if we ever get to the place where we're just kind of like reading the Bible and knowing the stories, that is not the type of spirituality that Jesus comes to extend to us, and it's not just for us. It's supposed to start with us as the church and extend itself out into the world, and we become the ambassadors of God proclaiming with our lives that God wants to redeem and transform all things and renew all things. Amen. Oh, I could just sit down right now, I guess, but we're not going to do that. We're going to actually jump into Matthew chapter 7 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can pull it out. If you have a phone app, you can take that out and press yourselves there. But we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 together, and it's going to be good. Jesus teaches us these things in Matthew chapter, here's a real, here's a trick, by the way, that I learned. If, you, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the quickest way to get to the gospel of Matthew is you close the Bible and you open it up halfway, you'll be right around the Psalms, and then if you open it halfway again, you should be in Matthew. I don't know. I learned that when I was like seven, so thank you, Sunday school. All right, sorry. Matthew chapter seven, we'll read verses one through five. I'm reading from the New International Version. Jesus teaches us this. He says, do not Judge, Hmm. or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I don't think there's a situation in the world where the standard I hold myself to is different than the standard I hold other people to than when I'm driving my car. I don't know if anybody can relate to this. I'm not sure if it's having been born and raised in Southern California where traffic is infested all over the place, where we determine drive times not by distance, 
but by a local algorithm that utilizes the day of the week, the time of the day, and whether or not the Dodgers are home or away. But when I get into the car, I get extremely short-tempered. It's like I step into a portal, into a different world, and this person that sits in the driver's seat is not the Aaron Kaluza that preaches this morning. I become judgmental. I become quick with my tongue to criticize all other drivers. Just ask Paige. She is always amazed that I can preach and be the guy who also drives. But it's amazing how much I read into people's motivations and intentions when I'm on the road. All sorts of things go into my mind and often out of my mouth whenever somebody cuts me off, when they speed past me and get in front of me, when they tailgate me or veer ever so slightly for a quarter of a second into my lane and back. What a jerk. Are you an idiot? They're not even paying attention. Do they not realize I have a child in my car? They probably want to kill the child in my car right now. They wouldn't even care. But it's amazing how differently I think of my mistakes on the road. My reaction to my own occasional veering, which doesn't happen often, because I am, after all, a great driver. My reaction to my speeding past people when I probably shouldn't have or noticing, not noticing that a light has turned green because I'm on my phone distracted. Whenever I'm in this situation, I just try and give the sort of gentle nod and wave to the driver, just letting him know. Like, I recognize I was at fault, but I'm a great driver and I'm a good person. Like, I'm just here and I'm sorry that I messed up, but I know that they're not as patient with me as I wish that they were with me. Because... I, I, I can't read lips very well. I'm not an expert, but there are a few phrases that when you're driving in the car, you can read those phrases. I don't know sign language, but there's a few hand gestures that when I make a mistake, they often get flashed my way. I realize that they are not very patient with my mistakes. And I imagine they're thinking the same exact things that I think about peace. Yeah. Oh, good job, brother. Right? But I imagine that they're thinking the same things that I'm thinking about them. Right? What a jerk. Are you an idiot? Are you not paying attention? Do you want to kill my kids? You probably wouldn't care if you killed my kids right now. You see, when it comes to the shortcomings, mistakes, and failures, and errors, we often operate as what I call the standard double standard. The standard double standard. That is, we are more gracious to ourselves, and we are more critical to others. The standard double standard when it comes to mistakes. And you may not do this in your car, but from the laughter, I imagine this is some of you sitting in this room, but it's likely that there's some area in your life where you have the standard double standard towards others, that you are more gracious with your errors and more critical of others. How about if your spouse or children forget to take out the trash versus the moment when you forget to take out the trash? When they forget, they're lazy, they're selfish, and actively seeking to make your life more difficult and miserable. Do you see me washing the dishes and you can't even take out the trash? But when you forget, you were busy or just tired. How about if your coworker or boss or employee make a mistake at work versus when you make a mistake at work, which I, is probably never happens to anybody in this room, but when they make a mistake, it's they're apathetic, they're careless, they have no work ethic, they are unreliable people. But when you make a mistake, you had a hard week with the family and you were a little distracted. Or maybe there's just an unfortunate oversight. 
How about when people don't show up to church versus when you don't show up to church, right? When they don't show up, they're ungodly, sinful apostates, right? You can't come to church for three weeks, but when you don't show up, it's I had a hard week and I just needed to rest. Our family was on vacation. This was the only time we could get away. But part of being human means that we make judgments all the time of people. This is a natural and wise thing in some cases that we do, right? I mean, after all, the entire Sermon on the Mount is built on this idea that we are discerning people. We can see unrighteousness and we can see righteousness. And Jesus calls us to live into the way of righteousness. And we don't want to get rid of that ability. But here's the problem is that when our judgments and when our discernments, quote-unquote, sort of functions out of this sort of default mode of judging people harshly and being more generous with ourselves, we wander away from the way of Jesus. And this can become particularly harmful to community and relationships, even within the church. See, one of the things that we have to constantly hold in mind as we read the Sermon on the Mount is that the sermon isn't just for individual spirituality. This isn't just a how-to guide to get the best out of your life, how to live your best life, right? This is not what the Sermon on the Mount is called. The Sermon on the Mount is a teaching for the disciples. That is, it's for the community of disciples. And because it's addressed to that group of people, it necessarily speaks to issues that involve relationships, And this default setting of grace for me or generosity for me, criticism for you, can wreak havoc on any community. You see it wreak havoc in marriages. You see it wreak havoc between parents and children. You see it wreak havoc in workplaces, but it can also wreak havoc in the community of Jesus followers that we call the church. And in our passage this morning, we learn that when we live out of this standard, double standard, We begin to take on some roles that are either way too big for us to take on or undesirable for us to take on. And the first role that this sort of standard double standard leads us to playing in the midst of community is the role of judge. It's the role of judge. I read a story this week of a church board member. This wasn't in our church. Just let me really specify. This did not happen. I really read this. It wasn't here. It would never happen here, I know. But I read a story this week of a church board member who remarked to the pastor, do you know how many true Christians there are in this church? To which the pastor replied, no, I don't. But I suspect it may be one fewer than what you're thinking. (laughs) That didn't happen here. Like, seriously, it didn't happen here. But see, the problem with the person who takes on the role of judge is really threefold, right? First, as Jesus states, the judge only ever produces more judges in community. See, if we make Jesus' words in verse 1, or if we look at Jesus' words in verse 1 as a positive command, we could read it this way, judge others and you will be judged. If you want a surefire way of creating a community of people who loves to judge each other, if you want a surefire way of creating a critical, fault-finding type of people, all you have to do in the church is be critical and judgmental of those here. Because the knee-jerk reaction we all have to being criticized and judged is what? To fight back, right? I didn't take out the trash. Well, you didn't make the bed, right? That's how it rolls. There's no criticism or judgmentalism that doesn't produce more of that thing. But the judge has another problem. 
See, in taking it upon themselves to play the role of judge, particularly within the context of the Christian community, they have unintentionally decided to play the role God has declared belongs to him alone. Paul writes in Romans 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. So the reason why God is judge is because he's the only one who can rightfully judge. Right? Amen. But the second role that our default setting leads us to live in the community, this standard double standard, is the role of hypocrite. The role of hypocrite. The theologian and ethicist John Howard Yoder wrote, the world is made up of two kinds of people, the good and the bad. And it's always the good who take it upon themselves to decide which are which. I love that. The tragedy of his humorous statement is seen in a parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. The parable is taught specifically to those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Jesus tells the parable this way in Luke 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One is like a super godly religious person and one is a super sinful evil person. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The role of hypocrite, the person who is so blind to their own pridefulness that they can't see that that's the log that's stuck in their eye they just cannot see it themselves. And the danger, and I'll remind you again, when you read the word hypocrite throughout the Gospels and Jesus' teaching, it's never somebody who is intentionally trying to deceit people. They don't even know that they're playing this deceptive role. They're unaware of the conditions of their heart or the words that they're actually praying. They just live unreflectively this life of religiosity before the community thinking that they are so great and wonderful. The judge and the hypocrite share a common problem though. Both the judge and the hypocrite think they're the measuring stick against which everyone else is evaluated. Oh, that would be so nice if we could live that way. I heard a pastor use this illustration the other day that fit perfectly into this idea. LeBron James. You guys know who LeBron James is? He's the world's greatest basketball player. Hopefully he's going to bring redemption to the Los Angeles Lakers this year, but we'll see. But LeBron James, right, he can definitely jump higher than almost everybody on this planet, and certainly everybody who's in this room, except for maybe, no, he could jump higher than all of us, right? And it would be one thing for LeBron James to like walk around and be like, man, I'm so great because I could jump so much higher than you. I could dunk. I could 360 dunk. I could windmill dunk, all these types of things. And that's certainly true, right? 
But if we change the measurement from a 10-foot hoop to the moon, how silly would it be for LeBron James to go around bragging about how much he could jump higher than me? It's like, okay, maybe you could jump two or three higher than me, but like you're not even close to the moon. Like you can't get all the way there. We're both this far away. You're just three feet higher. See, the problem with the judge is that they have usurped God's rightful place of judge thinking that they're the standard, that they're the 10-foot hoop. Look at I could jump two feet higher than you. Well, you're still not even close to the moon. See, in doing this, they've created this sense of self-righteousness built on degrading their community. You see, self-righteousness is always this individual attempt to shortcut to the path of righteousness that Jesus calls us to, but it only is ever a mirage, right? And the alternative to this sort of self-righteousness is not being sort of passively indifferent about everybody else, right? Jesus doesn't call us to be unconcerned about everybody else that we are in community with. The, the first call is just stop degrading all those that you're in community with. See, we as a church, we're not supposed to take up this you-do-you kind of attitude within our community, tolerating everybody's shortcomings and failures and mistakes and errors, right? It's the one who is self-righteous that degrades and criticizes everybody. And it might be a good intention to think, well, I'm not supposed to judge anybody, right? This is the mantra of our world. You do you. That's good for you. That's good for you. This is good for me. This is good for me. This is not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to this third alternative that helps us to avoid being judged and helps us avoid being hypocrite and helps us avoid being passively indifferent. See, what Jesus calls us to is communal righteousness built on following him. And we nurture communal righteousness when we follow Jesus' words that we discover in verse 5 of our passage this morning. Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, don't be concerned about the speck in your brother's eye. Rather, he says, yeah, you're supposed to be concerned about the shortcomings and failures and the the issues that those you are in community with have, but you can only position yourself to be sincerely concerned when you've taken the plank out of your own eye. And this requires that we play the role of brother or sister within the community of faith. One of the things that makes the, um, the sibling relationship so unique is that they're the only people on the planet who experienced your upbringing with you, right? They're the only people on the planet who know what it's like. I think about this with my brother sometimes. They're the only people on the planet who can truly relate to me when I talk about my parents making us wash the dishes every night together, even though we had a functioning dishwasher in the kitchen. Like they're the only people in my life who kind of like get why that was such a miserable thing for us growing up. They're the only ones in my life that experience with me our family's traditions during holidays. My brothers, they're the only ones that experience with me staying up late at night when all three of us decided we wanted to share the same room, even though there was enough for all of us to have our own room, and waiting to hear like the babysitter's report when we know that we were bad all night. Like, are they going to tell on us? Are they not going to tell on us? They're the ones who like I would play with late at night, right? When we were supposed to be asleep and mom would come walking down the hallway and you'd jump under the covers real quick and try and control your breathing while they come in and check on you. They are the only ones 
that experienced so much of life with me. My brothers are the only ones that walked with me through the ups and downs of our family's life in our formative years in junior high and high school. They're the ones who cried the same tears that I cried. They're the ones who celebrated the same moments that I celebrated with me. And what we discover in the gospel church and throughout the New Testament is this basic truth that comes to us in Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is, we recognize that we are all failures, that we all have shortcomings, that we've all made mistakes, that we've all made errors. And as a church, what we have discovered in Jesus is a God who loves and dies for us even though we made uh, mistakes and errors. See, Paul writes in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We discover in 2 Corinthians 5 that God is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, not counting it, not counting people's sins against them. You see, we discover in Jesus a God whose mission it is to be a doctor to the sick, a God who comes into the world to call sinners to enter the kingdom that he has prepared for them. And the good news of the New Testament is that the Lord of creation, Jesus Christ himself, who has all authority in heaven and, and on earth, doesn't condemn us in the midst of our failures or in our errors or in our shortcomings or in our mistakes. Rather, he responds to us with grace and mercy. And as it turns out, it's this grace and mercy that has the power to transform our lives. For those of you who have been following Jesus for years, like, can you still remember that first moment when all of the good news of the gospel clicked for you for the first time? Like, do you remember that reality where it dawned on you that in spite of who you are, in spite of the person that you see in the mirror, that God still accepted you? I remember when that dawned on me in college, my junior year of college. I was like, this can't be right. This can't be true. Like, even me, like, even me. Do you remember that moment for yourself where this didn't just become this teaching that you understood in your mind, but you felt it emotionally in your heart? Do you remember how after years and years of struggling in the Christian faith, every time like, man, I'm such a bad Christian, how do I keep struggling with this thing where God reminded you, I'm still sufficient for you. My grace is still enough for you. My love is still enough for you. I still want to use you for the purposes of my kingdom in this world. Do you remember how strange it was to be met by the kindness of God? Do you remember what it meant for God to accept you where you were, but not to leave you where you were? Can you look back? Are you at a stage in your life where you could look back 10, 15 years? This is one of the gifts of time that we get as we get older. To see where you were, but you're not there anymore because of the grace of God functioning in your life. Through his grace, he began to gently reform your heart and your life to become a new creation. This is the gospel. And it's out of that shared experience of awe and wonder at the grace and kindness of God that we can take on the role of brothers and sisters in the community of faith. See, when we take on the role of brother and sister, we find that we have the capacity to be as critical of ourselves as we often are of others and as generous to others as we always are to ourselves. 
You see, in being critical of ourselves, by the grace of God, we can begin to do the work of removing the planks from our eyes. And in so doing, we become a resource to those in the community of faith who have specks in their eyes. But removing the specks is supposed to be done with generosity and with graciousness and with mercy, but as honestly as possible. I think of the role, I was trying to think of an image or illustration that could sort of unpack this role of brother or sister that we're supposed to play for one another in the church. The thing that came to mind this week was uh, a sponsor within Alcoholics Anonymous. I looked up the definition of what a sponsor is in AA, and they define it this way. A sponsor is an alcoholic who has made some progress in the recovery program and shares that experience on a continuous, individual basis with another alcoholic who is attempting to attain or maintain sobriety through AA. That is, a sponsor in AA is somebody who's wrestling, dealing with the stuff that's going on in their lives, but they've made a little bit of progress. And because they've made a little bit of progress, they become a resource to those who are trying to get to where they are. And this is what we are to be for one another. This is what it means to be a brother or sister within the body. It means that we haven't gotten and arrived to the place where, look at me, I'm sort of the spiritual guru over here and I have all the answers. That's what people often think of pastors. (laughs) Ask Paige, I ain't got it all together, right? I made some progress though. And there's some of you who are sitting in this room, you've made greater progress than me and I need you to speak into my life kindly and generously but honestly. And there's some of you sitting in this room who you have specks in your eyes and what you desperately need is to be in relationship with somebody who will extend to you in grace and mercy the honesty that you need to grow and and transform and be reshaped and reformed in your own life. You see, we're supposed to be the type of people who experiencing the all-encompassing love of God have made some progress and generously offer guidance to those who are trying to walk the same path that we are. If we lived in community as brothers and sisters, we could do away with the judges and we could do away with the hypocrites. We could do away with the standard, double standards that we have for one another. But how might this change your life? How might it change our lives if we knew that there was a community of people who is concerned about the specks that were in our eyes, right? This would change everything about our community. How would it change our receiving of people's feedback and honest conversations and criticism of us if we knew that at the end of the day, they were following Jesus, they have experienced the grace of God in their lives, and they were just doing us a kindness and a service by speaking truth into our lives. I remember my sophomore year of college, I had an epiphany. You have lots of epiphanies in college. But I had one... And it was like a, like a total light bulb moment of an obvious truth. I don't know what brought this on, but one, one night as I was walking to the gym to work out, this thought just dawned on me. The thought was, everything my parents did for me, they always had my best interest in mind. Like it was a truth that like I probably would have said like, oh, of course, my parents have my best interest in mind, right? They're my parents after all. But it like hit me like, like that was a reality 
That all the criticism, all the feedback, all the fights, it was always with my best interest in mind. And the church is supposed to function this way. That we come into this place and we're in community. And the relationships that we have here, they're not just like, sort of like, hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Oh, you made me feel good at worship this morning. So we're supposed to get into the midst of each other's lives and care for and love on one another, have hard conversations when necessary, point out specs when necessary, because we have each other's best interests in mind. The church, we, we need to be brothers and sisters if we're gonna live this way. Can you imagine what a witness to God's kingdom this would be in our world today? We live in a world that loves to point out the specks in each other's eyes, right? Just go on Twitter for like 10 seconds. Go on Facebook for 10 seconds. Everyone's an idiot apparently to everyone else. But can you imagine a community of people who exercise out of a place of humility and honesty and sincere love for one another, help guide and lead and shape one another? Man, we live in a world filled with judges and hypocrites, but what if the church decided we were gonna be brothers and sisters to help each other along in actual spiritual progress and maturity? Man, what kind of testimony would that bear to the world about the God that we serve? How might that cast vision for a different way of relating to one another in our community and city? Don't you wanna be a part of that kind of church? And I want to be a part of that kind of church. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess in so many ways our hearts are inclined to judgmentalism and hypocrisy. And we are often blinded to the ways in which these are being expressed in our lives. And so we ask God and we submit ourselves humbly before you this morning that by your grace, by the conviction that can come by your Holy Spirit, that you would reveal the ways in which our hearts are not aligned with this teaching that comes from our Lord Jesus. That we would become very much aware of the ways that we are functioning as judges and hypocrites in our marriages, in our church, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and that you somehow, by the mysterious thing that we call grace, would transform our hearts and lives, utilizing the community that we find ourselves in this morning to become brothers and sisters for one another. Not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. We want to become these kinds of people, God. And so we ask, continue to nurture within us the type of community that you intended the church to be, that in so doing, we would become the salt and light of the world. We thank you for your grace and ever-enduring patience with us, oh God. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus that we pray. Church, as you live in awe of the gracious call of Jesus in your life, 
May you become the brother or sister that we need you to be in this church. Go in his peace.